Well, today is a beautiful day to come and to worship the Lord. If you're a guest, my name's David, and uh, I'm the pastor. We're so glad you're here. This is Vacation Bible School Week. I say this all the time. It's the most important week of the year. It really is. We get the chance to take children, your children, teach them about Jesus. And there's nothing more important than teaching people about Jesus. We're in a a series that started last week. It's going to go through the end of July, entitled The Kingmaker. It's a series about the life of, of Samuel. And uh, what I shared with you last week as we kind of began this series and looking at the life of Samuel uh, is this, that because of our rebellion against God, everybody needs somebody to save them. Everybody needs somebody to save them. Now, we understand from a New Testament perspective that ultimately that is in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but we, what we see is there was a period in the time of the life of Israel where Samuel had to come along and help deliver them out of the sin and bondage they were in to get them to King David. So he would anoint David as king who would lead them to the greatest heights they ever had. Now, last week we began not with Samuel, but in the book of Judges and saw the absolute sinfulness and rebellious of the people of Israel back in that time. And one of the things that I shared with you that I want to make clear was this, that if you live like a person in rebellion against God, then you are a person in rebellion against God. If you live that way, it's because you are that way. Well, today we begin and we come uh, into the book of 1 Samuel. We'll see these first two chapters and, and we'll look through all of it, but we'll focus on a few key verses and in uh, a message entitled The Child. And uh, that has nothing to do with the Mandalorian, in case you were wondering. There's no connection to that whatsoever. Though I did think about bringing Grogu up here uh, just for you know, a visual effect. But that doesn't look like Samuel at all. And uh, so what, uh, what I want you to see from the message today is this. When it comes to rebellion, commitment overcomes rebellion. So when it comes to God, commitment overcomes rebellion. Always understand with God, a commitment because of God, will always overcome rebellion. And so, as we begin the the message today, uh, what I want you to see in the life of Israel, that change was coming. Because of their sin, change was coming. Now, God wasn't going to change. God wasn't going to change who he was and what he expected to help them out. God never adapts to the culture. Because the culture is always in rebellion against God. But change was coming. And as I shared with you last week, what we see in in the life of Israel is what happened is they, instead of displacing and removing the the Canaanites and their worship of Baal and the paganism of Baalism, they, they allowed the concepts of Baalism to come into their culture and to come into their faith. And so while they would still say they worship Yahweh, their God, the Lord, They also brought in elements of worship of Baal. And so God completely rejected that. Remember what I shared with you? God determines how we worship and serve him. We don't. He never accepts that that convoluted way of worshiping him. And what you see back then is you see a type of, of moral relativism in which they said everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And you saw a type of syncretism where they will blend religions and blend types of faith. And syncretism and moral relativism never works when it comes to God. So he was going to make this change. And the change he was going to make was going to be Samuel coming. Now, what I shared with you last week about the Old Testament, and to keep in mind, is the Old Testament is really very fluid. Now, I, I encourage you, if you're a new Christian or if you're not a Christian, you don't start in the Bible in the Old Testament. You start in the New Testament. And the reason for that is simple. Because 
What we see in the Old Testament is what we call progressive revelation. In other words, God begins to reveal himself throughout the pages of the Old Testament progressively. He's moving to a point. He finishes completely his revelation to us in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God. To understand God is to understand Jesus. So you always begin with Jesus because then we know how to come to God. But what you see in the Old Testament, as I share with you, is a series of people, six key individuals that help you move along the history of Israel. There are three major people, Abraham, Moses, and David, and three guys who serve as transitions, Joshua, Elijah, and Samuel. Samuel was born towards the end of the 12th, beginning of the 11th century. He would take the people of Israel who were in chaos, they were divided, and they were incorporating the worship of Baal. He would take them and transition them away from that type of world environment to get them to the man he would anoint, King David, who would lead them to the greatest heights they would ever experience in both the worship of God and as a nation. To understand that day and age, we come now into Samuel at the time of First Samuel, there was a guy who was the high priest named Eli. Eli was old, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were kind of running things in his place. And we will see throughout the sermon series, this sermon today, I mean, they were totally corrupt. And they had, while not worshiping Baal or adopted Baalism, had taken the fundamental principles to syncretism and moral relevance. And they had kind of done things their own way. They were living proof that people, even those who were priests, did what was right in their own eyes. And because of this, Samuel needs to come into the picture. And as Samuel comes into the picture, understand this. God expects and values commitment and faithfulness. What you're going to see today in this message is the beginning of this concept that God both expects and values commitment, which is exhibited and lived out in faithfulness. Well, Samuel's story begins with his mama, Hannah. And we preach about Hannah and talk about Hannah a lot on Mother's Day. She is that, kind of that exemplary mother. Uh, she, she was married to a guy named Elkanah, and uh, she had no children. She was barren. Now, and, and that happens in our world today, and we understand reasons for it. But back then, in that day and age, they assumed that someone was barren and a woman couldn't have children because of her sin against God. Being barren was considered a type of curse, and that somehow you would displease God. And here's the thing. Hannah was a woman who loved God. She had not followed the ways of the Canaanites. She was not in Elkanah. They were, they were unique individuals. They were different. They were true worshipers. And it's amazing in the story of God how often in the midst of sin and rebellion, you see these people who are still committed to God. God uses them. In the book of Judges, God took Samson's parents. You come to the New Testament, you know, John the Baptist, you see his parents, Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. You know, they committed to God completely. And here you have these two committed to God. Every year they go up and they make the sacrifices. But because Elkanah's wife Hannah was not able to have children, he had another wife. And she bore him children so his lineage would carry on. So here Hannah was just being crushed with all that was going on. And on one of their yearly trips to make sacrifices and to pay honor to God, we pick up in verse 9. When Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, now the... the the tabernacle of the Lord, the, the, the holy place, the, the Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh, not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not even on the picture yet. It was just a thoroughly pagan city. 
Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. The temple, don't think of Solomon's temple. The, the, the place of worship was a tent, but they had permanent structures there. And they would have walls surrounding it so the priests and others could live. She, notice this, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She was distressed. She was overcome. The concept of distressed means to be torn. In anguish, she was praying bitterly. It means she was praying with great hurtful emotion. I mean, she was crushed because God was cursing her with being barren. In verse 11, you see part of her prayer. She made a vow. Now, a vow is, to us, we think about wedding vows as a commitment, a pledge. In the New Testament, a vow is a pledge. In the Old Testament, they're pledges, but because their understanding of God was limited because he had not revealed himself completely, it kind of comes off as a bargain. She's bargaining with God. Don't bargain with God, okay? We, we, we have the New Testament. We don't make bargains with God. We make commitments to God. But it is a commitment of sort. It is an important commitment. The best, the best that she could, she said, oh, Lord of hosts. The phrase Lord of hosts, if you have the NIV, is the Lord Almighty. This is important. It means like the Lord of the armies. But here's what it, means, is what it signifies. It signifies a God who was in control. He was the Almighty when Yahweh, Lord, that's the personal name of, of God, Yahweh, was the Almighty. He is the one absolutely in control. So she recognizes the sovereignty of God or the control of God. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, let me come to mind, Father, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. So she says, God, give me the son. And I will absolutely move this right here. I'm going to absolutely give that son completely back to you. Now, here's the thing. In the Jewish world and culture, according to, to their system, the way they, they were structured around the world, the Lord, the first of everything belonged to God. When you had a crop, the first cut of the crop was, was God's. When you had a, a, a cow, and a cow had a calf, that first calf belonged to God. And when you had a child, that child belonged to God. Now, what they would do is they would, in essence, pay a ransom, or they would buy back their child. In other words, they would make a financial or some type of sacrifice, depending on how wealthy or poor they were, to, to buy their child back. In essence, saying, God, I know this one's yours. It's dedicated to you, but I'm going to take it, and I'm still going to be dedicated to you, but I'm taking it back. And so what she is saying is basically, I'm not going to take him back. He is yours. And in according to number six, numbers, the book of uh, Numbers chapter six, I'm not, I'm, he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, in, in the book, uh, book of Numbers, the sixth chapter, it talks about a person, especially a male, can make a time of commitment to God. And in that time of special commitment, you wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine, you wouldn't touch anything dead, and no razor would cut your hair. Now, what's interesting is whenever we see a Nazarite vow, and they were supposed to be temporary in the scriptures, there's always parents or God to the parents making it a lifelong commitment on behalf of somebody. Samson was that way. John the Baptist was that way. Samuel is not making this commitment. His mother is making this commitment on his behalf. He will always be given to you. Now, Eli the priest sees her praying. And after a conversation, he blesses her and says, the Lord will give it to you. And she has a child. Names him Samuel. And for a few years, until he's a little bit older, she does not go to Shiloh. And then when it's time to give him up, she goes to Shiloh there. And she's going to leave him there with Eli the priest there at that sacred spot. Now, I want to, I want to stress something here. This is really important as we come to this Old Testament passage. This is the Old Testament. 
when you commit your child to the Lord, and you need to do that, understand, do not leave your child here with us for us to raise them, okay? <laughs> do not want your kids. Now, tomorrow's VBS, we want them for a little while. You know, you drop your kid off at 9 o'clock. At 12 o'clock, come get your kids. Now, and, and, and listen, I don't care if they're yours. If you bring two kids, you just come get two kids. I don't care which two. I would come early because if you come late, all that's going to be left are the staff kids. You don't want to, to take those guys home, I'm telling you. That. Here's what she said in verse 27 For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have, notice, dedicated him to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. He was dedicated, set apart, committed. And it was a commitment that Samuel would fulfill on behalf of his family. And he began then at that site to worship. So you have the setting up of Samuel being there. When you move to chapter 2, what you're going to see is a contrast between this child as he grows and the two sons of Eli who were grown men, Hophni and Phinehas. Chapter 2 begins with a beautiful prayer or song of Hannah, which glorifies and praises God. As soon as that prayer, that hymn, that song is over, here is what Samuel, 1 Samuel says to us in chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The word worthless means useless. It is the concept of being is evil. All right, Brian, I know you don't want me doing this, brother. Tell, somebody tell Brian I moved his stuff. I've always wanted to do that. In fact, I do it when I want to anyway, so. Where was I? Worthless men and Brian's stuff. That doesn't go together. Anyways, the word worthless means to be evil in essence. And, and notice it says they did not know the Lord. The word know doesn't mean they didn't know him here. They knew about God. They were the priest. They didn't know him here. They didn't know him in their hearts. They didn't know and understand a relationship with him. See, they had a position. But position doesn't equal authenticity. A person can claim to be a follower of Jesus and never know Jesus. A person can claim and they can hold the position of being even a pastor and not truly know Jesus. Just because you claim something or have a position doesn't mean it's real or legit. We then go to see the fundamental sin of his two sons. They took the sacrifices and corrupted them. Now, in the worship of Yahweh, the pure worship of Yahweh, when the sacrifice came, they took the best part of whatever, let's say a, a calf, and, and they took the fatty parts, gave it to the Lord, and then you know, they would begin to cook the rest, boil the rest, and the priests would get some of it. They'd get, they'd get a good portion. They'd get the breast, they'd get the, the, the thigh, and the rest belonged to the worshiper. And what they were doing is before there was ever a sacrifice, they would take the very best. Or in the sacrifice, they would take a fort and pull out what they wanted. In other words, they corrupted the worship and they took what they desired. They put themselves first. Now, understand, they weren't worshiping Baal as, as in other places that were going on in the area. These were the priests. But they had corrupted the practice, the worship of Yahweh. 
They had corrupted it so much that they dishonored God that this is what it says in verse 17 about them. It says this, Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men, get this, despised the offering of the Lord. The offering was their sign of their commitment. They despised it. They rejected the commitment that they were to have to the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. Now, Hannah, in this time, keeps coming every, every year, maybe a couple times a year, to see her son, bring him stuff. And in the meantime, she has more children. And in light of all this, this kind of this summary we're seeing that's con- contrasting all of this, what we also see is that Hophni and Phinehas, not only did they despise the offering of the Lord, but much like the Baal priest, the women who were serving at the temple, the women who had some responsibility at the temple, they took them and they lay with them and said. In other words, they abused them. They took them. They acted and behaved just like the pagans around them. In other words, they did what was right in their own eyes. The, the, the syncretism, the moral relativism was destroying and, underground, and just undermining the moral fabric of their faith. When you see this in comparison to Samuel, this is how Samuel is summarized. Not as one of the worthless guys like Hophni and Phinehas, but here's what we see about Samuel. The boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. Same thing is said later on about Jesus in the book of Luke. Stature means completely and just physically, emotionally, he was growing to be a committed man. And he had found the favor of both God in others. A prophet of the Lord comes to Eli. And in coming to Eli, he pronounces judgment upon him in his house. And this is how he finishes that judgment in chapter 2. This will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. They will die as judgment. And then verse 35. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart. And in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before me. Uh, He will walk before my anointed ways. God said, I want someone who will do what's in my heart and soul. We should always seek to do what the Lord wants, what's in his heart, what's in his soul. The will of the Father, that is our desire. He says, I want someone who will do that. Now, immediately we think of Samuel, and he did occupy that position. But ultimately, what will happen when you come to 1 Kings is the descendant of Eli, Abiathar, will be replaced by someone else named Zadok, and he will become the high priest. And the lineage of Eli, because of their rebellion, will be completely wiped out in terms of being the high priest. And someone else will take their place. Understand this. This is important. So in, in essence, this is kind of what this guy is saying, this, this prophet this is saying to, uh, to Eli. If you choose to live in rebellion against God, <laughs> he will do something to defeat that rebellion. You need to know this. This holds true today, by the way. If you choose to live in rebellion against God in your life, as a culture, as a church, whatever, he will do something to defeat that rebellion. Change was coming. The immediate change would be Samuel. Following Samuel would be David. And the ultimate change would be the somebody who would save us, Jesus. Which brings me then to this, well, I want you to see today, if it's true, what I said earlier, that commitment overcomes rebellion in the eyes of God, then I want to talk to you about overcoming rebellion. And, uh, and what I'm doing is, is we take these verses today, and we take kind of what we saw back in Judges and bring it forward. 
And uh, so let me just begin kind of by sharing this. If you celebrate, if you celebrate rebellion against God, you can't celebrate God. I mean, I could have put if you lived in rebellion or walked in rebellion, but I wanted to say if you celebrate, and that's what we see in our culture today. In our culture, we see people celebrating their absolute rebellion against God. If you allow that celebration to come into the life of the church, then you can't celebrate God like we do today. Uh, on Wednesdays is the day I do my major sermon work. I do a lot of prep work beforehand, you know, days and weeks beforehand. But so Wednesdays I do a lot of study, the writing of it all and everything. And Wednesday I came to about this point in my message. And uh, it was lunchtime and I went home. And uh, Debbie was there and we had lunch. And she said, hey, did you read this? Did you read about this, this guy who's a drag queen but who's a pastor at this church in Illinois? I'm like, what? No, she said this is drag queen pastor. I said, oh, that's interesting. And uh, so I came to the office, and I Googled that up because this is fascinating. And uh, in a church in Illinois, uh, it hadn't been around long, but it's, it's a church that's part of a, uh, one of the larger denominations. It's not ours. We're the Catholics and us, and then some others. It's one of those others in terms of size. And it's a, a dying denomination, by the way, rightly so, I think. I read this, and, and he's the associate pastor, and he just dresses up in drag. And he went and preached a message, I guess, because it's Pride Month, whatever. And so I thought, well, okay, I guess he preached a message about acceptance and all that. No, he didn't preach that message. This is what is even crazy. He basically preached, and I'm not saying this lightly, probably the most blasphemous, sacrilegious message I could ever imagine. And it was in a church that says they honor Christ. And he just blasted everything about the Christian faith including God, the Trinity, Jesus, the resurrection, all of it. And like, why in the world are you even in a church? You hate Christianity. You reject Christianity. Why do you consider yourself a Christian? And then I realized it's because a culture in opposition to God always wants to leverage the Christian to corrupt it. That's what moral relativism does. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's exactly what was happening. More relativism, syncretism, corrupts and destroys everything they touch every time. What we need is true commitment, which you see in Samuel. Let me talk to you for a few minutes and share with you three things about developing your commitment. The first, of this, first is this. You need to have a fundamental trust in the sovereignty of God. Commitment means you have a fundamental trust that God is in control. Hannah, in her desperation, prayed, God, I know you're in control. Now, praying that God is in control doesn't mean that he always answers things the way we want. Don't think that because he answered Hannah's prayer the way she wanted, he will answer your prayer the way you want. To understand that God is in control is to understand even if God doesn't answer the prayer the way I want it to, I trust God is in control. Earlier this year, we were in that series in Mark. And uh, in the series in Mark, we preached about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And hours before he went to the cross, where he was going to give himself for us, die on the cross in our place on our behalf, and suffer eternal separation from God. Before he experienced that separation from God, he prayed, Father, if there's any way we can save mankind without me being separated from you, would you do it? I said, I'm going to paraphrase. And then he said this, but it's not my will. It's your will that should be done. 
Understanding that God is in control is understanding the desire to have the will of God done. It's okay to ask God for what you want. But it's more important to be sure that what you want is what God wants. The understanding that there is a God who is in charge of life. And you trust that no matter what happens, he's in control. Second thing is that you should have an obedience to the call of God. You need to obey God. Eli's sons didn't obey God. What we'll see in Samuel's life is that he did. You see, commitment is always evidenced by obedience. It's not our obedience that makes us committed. It's our commitment that allows us to obey. Now, we look at it from the perspective of the New Testament, not the Old Testament. From the New Testament, that obedience begins with following Jesus. He says, come follow me, come follow me. Salvation is not something we earn or do. Jesus saves us, but he calls us in that process to follow him. To follow him means we repent of our sin. We repent of that rebellion, and we trust in the resurrected Lord, the gospel, the resurrected Jesus. Once we've done that, we are called to live a life of love. We love God, love others. Jesus commanded us, love God, love others. Now, what we have to understand is what the word love means. Because our culture is co-opting, and they're taking that word love, and they're changing the fundamental structure and nature of it, and then they're trying to push their concept of love into the church, and that's what we see. That's not what it, the word love is not the concept, the Greek concept, eros, never found in the New Testament. That's the world's view of love. It is selfish. It is a love about me. Give me what I want, accept me, let me do what is right in my own eyes. If you'll do that, you love me. But the concept of love found most predominantly in the New Testament is agape. It's never, but only one or two times you ever see it outside the New Testament. And it has no real meaning outside the New Testament. The New Testament gives us its meaning. It is a selfless, it is a giving sacrificial love. So John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, what he did, he gave. That is love. And that's how we love people. We love people. We care about them. We have compassion for them. But we want them to come to Jesus. There is a selflessness. We want to, to see them come to Christ. We don't just give them anything they want and say that's love. That's not love. If the, if the drag queen pastor was to, to come to church, we might ask, would he be welcome here? Yes, he would be. And if anybody made him unwelcome, then you would know what it is to be unwelcome pretty quick after that by me. Always welcome here. But will we let you teach vacation Bible school tomorrow? No. Though we may have some of the colors that may look like we would attract you to that, no. We wouldn't. Because just because we would want you to come here and we love you doesn't mean the way you live your life is okay. Let me put it to you this way. In all of our services, I know that we're going to have people, and we love them, and we care for them, who are men and women who are living together as if they're married who aren't really married. Are, you, are, people, are you welcome here? Of course you're welcome here. Does that mean that we think that your lifestyle is okay? No. The way you live your life is still wrong. And we could go on and on to people who were thieves or people who are, who are abusing alcohol or abusing drugs. Listen, everyone is welcome here. We love you. Does that mean your life is okay? No. Does that mean we're going to tell you everything you're doing is all right? No. Because we love you. We want you to come to Jesus. It's not all right. Which brings me to the other part of obedience. And it's that people need Jesus. And we need to share Jesus with people. 
That's what he tells us to do. That's why we want people to come here. If we tell people they can't come here, where are they going to learn about Jesus? And don't tell me, oh, we'll go tell them because you're not doing that. We've got to have people come to hear about Jesus because Jesus saves them. Tell people about Jesus. Two, the obedience to that call. The third thing we see is this. You must have a relentless, relentless faithfulness to God. I love that word relentless. I, mean, I know in the Bible it's enduring and persevering. I get that. But the word relentless just has that just active, almost, it's almost aggressive view to it. Hannah was relentless in her faithfulness. And she raised Samuel to be that way. And you see the life of Samuel. He was relentless as a man of God. We need to be that way, especially in our culture. You can't give an inch. It's the evidence of our salvation is our faithfulness. We do the things God called us to do. It's easy in our culture because there's so much pressure put on us now to, to go along, you know, to get along. But you can't do that. And Christians who give in to the culture, churches who give in to the culture, will cease to be effective in the eyes of God. We live in a world in rebellion against God. Remember, commitment overcomes rebellion. And to understand what faithfulness is, is simple. It's just this. Faithfulness is a trust and loyalty that endures in each and every situation. Faithfulness is a trust in God and a loyalty to him that endures in every situation you find yourself. It is the evidence of commitment because commitment overcomes rebellion. So as you look at your life today, where are you? Are you living a life of rebellion? Are you living a life that is committed? Some of you today may need that commitment to start by trusting Christ to be your Savior. And while I have not preached an evangelistic message, please understand you always have the opportunity to trust Jesus to save you, to save you from your rebellion, to save you from your sin. You can't do it, but he can. Come and trust Christ. And some of you, as a follower of Jesus, in your commitment, it may be struggling. So do you have absolute trust in the sovereignty of God? Is there a situation in your life right now where you know you need to trust that God is in control even if things aren't going the way you want. For some of you, do you need to be obedient to his call? Are you living that life of obedience or have you in your life disobeyed God? And are you relentless in your faithfulness? Every day, in the toughest of situations, you're faithful to God. Just a moment, we'll be here. And uh, standing here, and uh, ladies, I, I think there'll probably be another lady up here. If you would rather talk or pray with another woman, and if you want to give your life to Christ, come and trust Jesus to be your Savior. If you want to come and pray with us about your commitment, come and do that. If you want to join our church like we had in the last service, do that as well. Listen, I don't know what you need to do today, but know this. You're either going to walk out of here committed, or you're going to walk out of here in rebellion. But commitment always overcomes rebellion. Father, thank you. That we can come in the name of Jesus Christ and we can come in the power of the Holy Spirit before you to, to move away from rebellion through commitment. And that commitment isn't something we generate. God, we know it comes from you. And we know that commitment comes from Christ working in our life. So help us give ourselves to him completely in a culture that seems to be at war with us, in a culture where we seem to battle constantly. God, help us be trusting in your 
sovereignty over all of situations, to be completely obedient to your call in our life, and to have a faithfulness, Father, that never ends, so that we can serve you and help people come to Jesus and give you the glory that is yours in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. You come.